Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Most of the episodes on the Leadership Playbook podcast are conversations with top executives from the world's most recognizable brands, asking them about the stories behind their success, their leadership secrets, and the biggest challenges they've faced in their careers. One such challenge in the sports business today is NIL, or Name, Image, and Likeness. NIL refers to the use of college athletes' name, image, and likeness and their new ability to make endorsement deals get paid for social media posts and personal engagements, and so much more. In April, our MBA in Sport and Entertainment Management program sponsored a conference organized by the Pacific Northwest Academy of Legal Studies and Business. One of the most well-attended sessions was a panel on new developments in NIL, comprising subject matter experts who work primarily in the field. This episode is a recording of that panel discussion with James Booter. Assistant Attorney General at the University of Washington, Rick Jones, founder and managing partner of law firm Goldberg Jones, Hector Rivas, co-founder of sports agency Disruptive Sports, Debbie Spander, CEO of Insight Sports Advisors, and Natalie Welch, assistant professor in our MBA in Sport and Entertainment Management program. I'm Terry Foster. I'm privileged to be co-chair of this year's conference. Welcome to Seattle. So when you have a title like diversity and disruption, it provides a lot of leeway. Under that title, you can do things that haven't been done before. In fact, you're expected to do that. And so we're doing that here every single minute of, of every presentation this never been done before. At this time, I'm going to introduce our team leader, our commander-in-chief, Eva Sedgwick, who has engineered this entire thing, including the playlist. Yes. <laughs> this important part. As Terry said, actually, I'm really co-chairing this event with Terry. And I'm also the director of our MBA in Sport and Management program as of last July. And for the first time in our Pacific Northwest Academy's history, we decided we would do something different and partner with the MBA in Sport and Entertainment program in this case. And part of that was because we last year were introduced to more sports law issues at our conference in McMinnville. And part of it you know, was just this, the theme of diversity. There's kind of a natural affinity of our academy of teacher, scholars, practitioners with what we're trying to do in our MBA in sport and management program. And I'll talk a little bit about that for just a few minutes. But it's been exciting because we also get to open up to other disciplines like marketing and management. And traditionally, as a, as a law academy, we've just been, you know, a bunch of lawyers. We meet every year. We go, you know, we Idaho, Oregon, Seattle, and we rotate. But it's, it's just time. It's time to do something different and to try something a little bit new. So we decided, hey, why not? Why don't we partner with the MBA and Sport and Entertainment Management Program and 
coincidentally, I'm the director, so it all worked out very well. <laughs> also helps when you're trying to use facilities on campus to not be an external organization, but to have some relationship to the university and so forth. So as I said, you know, our theme is diversity and disruption. And as, an, as a law academy as of business law faculty and practitioners, I've been in this academy for 23 years. And we've always been committed to ideals of human rights, social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. And this is what we present about, we research, we teach in our classes. So, you know, this is not new to us, right, to be talking about diversity in different contexts. The MBA in Sport and Entertainment Management, our program was really built and created on the foundational principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that makes us very unique in the nation. It also makes us unique that we offer an MBA. We are graduating our first cohort of MBA students in June. And we're very proud of them. We also have a unique fellowship program because we have partners in our community Seahawks, Sounders, Storm, Kraken, T-Mobile now, Fox 13 News, the Seattle Sport Commission, I'm going to forget some of them, but their intentions are the same, and that is to diversify the sport and entertainment industry, meaning how do we get more women and persons of color in the front offices, the back offices, doing operations, doing marketing, doing sales, and so forth. So until the Supreme Court shuts us down, which we hope won't happen this summer, and when they do, we'll just get more disruptive, that is what we commit to, right? So, yeah, so I, I love this word disruption. It was actually Alicia's idea, so I can't take credit for it. But why disruption? Because we are constantly, both our program and our academy, trying to disrupt what has become normative discrimination, lack of equity, lack of the values of diversity. And that's really why, right? Why disrupt it? We're trying to disrupt, and we want to disrupt, and we'll continue to disrupt if we have to. That's how we all came to the theme of diversity and disruption. But I'm going to start by introducing our moderator MC for the morning, which is who is Rick Jones at the end here. Rick is an alum of our law school. He is an attorney in Seattle, and he is, I'm going to say, dominantly a very huge supporter of Seattle University Athletics as well as the founder of our Seattle University NIL Collective. All right, so enjoy. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Evan. Uh, my name is Rick Jones, and I'm very honored to be able to moderate the morning sessions regarding the NIL. I'm joined today by four esteemed panelists with a tremendous amount to share, so let's meet them. To my left is Hector Rivas. Hector is a co-founder of Disruptive Sports, a full-service sports agency that provides an innovative approach to sports management, focusing on empowering the athlete. Next to him is Natalie Welch, an assistant professor here at CLU's MBA in Sport and Entertainment Management. Natalie has hands-on prior experience in developing NIL policy at a D3 institution. Next to her is James Booter. James is an assistant attorney general assigned to the University of Washington James brings a unique insight into NIL developments from the university perspective. And lastly, Debbie Spander. Debbie is the CEO of Insight Sports Advisors, a boutique sports agency whose clients include NIL athletes. Debbie also consults with athletic departments on NIL and is currently teaching the NIL experience at USC. We're going to begin with what are NIL rights and why does the NC2, NC2A care? And we're going to turn this over to Debbie Spander. Morning, everyone. So everyone's calling it NIL. What does that stand for? Name, image, and likeness. 
why is it called name, image, and likeness? Because what NIL actually is, is sponsorship, marketing, and branding. But we call it NIL because that's what's in the NLI, which is the National Letter of Intent, which when you sign for a scholarship at a uh, university athletic department, you, for 170 years, you gave up your rights to your NIL. You signed away all of your rights to the university. You had no rights to your name, to the name on your jersey, to your being in a video game, to signing autographs. The university and the conference and the NCAA owned all of this. For 20 years, my husband and I have been fighting this and saying that this isn't fair. It's actually pretty funny. He tweeted something, I think, two days ago that when we first started dating, he showed me, I think I was a lawyer at Fox Sports at the time, and he showed me an NLI agreement. And he was arguing that top recruits shouldn't sign it, that Kentuckys and Dukes would hold their scholarships. But once you sign it, you had to go to the school, and if the coach left or if they signed someone else in your position, you were stuck at that school while the coach could move around. And if you wanted to transfer, you had to sit out for a year. So he was actually working with families to say, hey, if you've got enough market power, you don't need to sign this. So he showed it to me and I was like, this is a contract of adhesion. So his, his, uh, his little tweet was like, I propose shortly thereafter. <laughs> so it's really, it's your personal brand which is what I do in my agency is I help mostly former athletes, but now also NIL athletes build their personal brands apart from the university or the teams that they've played for and you know, grow your sponsorship and marketing rights. So basically you couldn't be paid for this for years and years and years. And then in July 1st of 2021, everything changed. How did this happen? Taking us back a little bit, the NCAA has basically been making money off of college athletes. We do not call them student athletes because that term was coined by the NCAA to take away their rights. So it was, it was in, in cohort with the IOC. So Mark and I call them college athletes and our class at USC, the, the uh, students get bonus points if no one says student athletes all semester. But back in, in 1852 was the first intercollegiate event on record, which was a, a regatta because that was a popular sport in the 1850s. And they literally took everybody up to Lake Winnipesaukee. They brought Yale and Harvard up, the athletes up to New Hampshire, and it was sponsored by the railroads to attract tourists. So even 170 years ago, the NCAA, the schools were making money off of the athletes. So as I mentioned, Everything changed on July 1st, 2021 with the Alston case. The Alston case didn't actually give NIL rights, which I'm sure you can elaborate on, but it opened the door by basically saying that there's no antitrust exemption and the NCA has to follow the laws and all of the member institutions. Here's some of the background of how we got here. So back in the 70s, some athletes started suing over medical and injuries and they were part of the institutions but they were severely injured and their medical bills weren't paid. Basically, it was held that they were student athletes, not employees, so they were not eligible for medical benefits after graduation. 
Kind of the big first case was Bloom versus NCAA. I don't know if anybody remembers, but Jeremy Bloom was a ski racer at Colorado and a wide receiver and return specialist. And skiing, to qualify for the Olympics, you have to get sponsors because no one's paying for your training and it's very expensive. So he had sponsors for his skiing, but not for playing football. And the NCAA said, sorry, you can only do one or the other. If you're going to get sponsors, you cannot be on the football team. So he sued and he lost. But that opened the door for the O'Bannon case, which um, has anyone seen air? So Sonny Vaccaro was actually the instigator of the O'Bannon case. And my husband, Mark Eisenberg, was also very involved in getting Ed O'Bannon, who we know from UCLA, to be the named plaintiff. So basically, EA had a NCAA basketball game, which used a lot of current and recently former players in it, but nobody had names on the back of their jerseys so that they weren't using name, image, and likenesses. However, the players looked eerily similar to the players who are on current teams at UCLA, Kansas, Duke, North Carolina, and Sonny, who, you know, got basically Nike going and, and all of the, the shoe payments, decided that this was unfair, and they sued in 2014. It took a long time to wind its way through the courts. It was actually heard up in Oakland. And the bottom line was you can't own your NIL rights, but the schools need to pay for full cost of attendance. Because before this, it was your scholarship which paid for basically school and books, but there was no money, if there wasn't training table, there was no money for food, there was no money for clothes, there was a big issue at UCLA when a running back was suspended for taking two bags of groceries. Because literally you couldn't live in LA and that there wasn't enough money unless you were from a wealthy family, which obviously most football and basketball players aren't. So this kind of opened the door for a little extra money. I think it was 5,000, is that right? So you could, up to 5,000 over, over your scholarship to pay for basically living. Then we have Alston versus NCAA, which a lower court struck down the ability to restrict what college athletes could legally receive beyond full cost of attendance. So the NCAA in a really, really bad and far reaching move decided that they were gonna fight it all the way to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court had always been on their side. And they took it to the Supreme Court and in a really shocking decision in basically today's era where we're in the most politically divided era ever. I mean, obviously I didn't live in the 17 and 1800s, but in my 50 years on this earth, nobody agrees, everything is 5-4, 6-3. This was a 9-0 case, which is crazy that conservatives, Democrats, liberals, everybody agreed that the NCA basically didn't have the right to do these restrictions. It didn't say, hey, you can have NIL, and hopefully you, will, you can jump in and elaborate on this a little more, but it basically said it's illegal to restrict it. And if anybody's read Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, he basically said, I don't understand why they're not employees. And what's really interesting is I think the one thing that really impacted Kavanaugh 
and some of the other justices is what coaches are making. They started a line of questioning like, coaches are making $10 million a year and athletes are making cost of attendance plus $5,000. There's something wrong with this. And then they went into the value of the media rights and the sponsorships, which the tournament is $2.1 billion. And this was before the new Big Ten agreement for $7 billion. And they just saw the amounts of money there and they're like, something's wrong. So it basically said the NCAA can't restrict this, but it didn't say what, <laughs> what is legal. So then it got turned over to the states. Do you want to elaborate a little more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Alston was an antitrust case, and that, that's what made it different from O'Bannon. The attack on the NCAA was that it was anti-competitive behavior. And it was true, it was caps that you, you couldn't make above the, the cost of attendance or, or grant and aid limit. And uh, students sued saying that those were just anti-competitive caps and limits on what schools would otherwise contribute. And all of these cases from O'Bannon to Alston to the handful of other cases that are now, you know, sprung arms and tentacles all over the place are all in Claudia Wilkins' courtroom up in, up in Oakland. Oakland yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that, that Judge Wilkin did find and the unanimous Supreme Court did find was that amateurism is a justification for anti-competitive behavior. And amateurism is what NCAA and institutions have been holding on to. They say what makes us unique, what makes us the ability to bring people to college and, and have an education experience is that we're amateurs, we're not professionals. And if you want to go be a professional, please go be a professional. But after Alston, and there's we could go down the rabbit hole on, on Alston, <laughs> concurrently states like Colorado, California, and Florida in particular started making laws saying nobody can regulate what student athletes can make in the NIL space when it comes to their name, image, and likeness. And everybody was wondering what the NCAA is going to do about it. In the Pacific 12 Conference, which my institution is a part of, we have four schools, or we had four schools from California. <laughs> and the question became, well, what happens if a third of our conference can't participate in NCAA games? And it was this big, this big thing. And so what the NCAA did right before the Colorado and Florida laws took effect, which was July 1st, 2021, which is why that, that date was so important. That's when the state laws were set to take effect. The NCAA said, never mind, you can, you can follow your state law, and if your state doesn't have a law, you can make money off of your name, image, and likeness, so long as any money that you make from name, image, and likeness is not a pay-for-play, so it's, it doesn't look like you're going to be making money for your athletic ability to play at a particular institution, and it's not an inducement. It's not, it's not really just, I'm going to give you this name, image, and likeness deal, but it's really money under the table for you to come to, to our institution. Which, unfortunately, the NCAA is not enforcing, so we'll get, we'll get oh, into collectives yeah. later, but it's opened up a huge can of worms, Wild West, because of lack of enforcement. So basically, California was actually the first state to pass a law before Alston was decided, but it wasn't supposed to take effect. There's a, a number of state senators who have been very keen on these issues for about 10 years. I think my husband actually testified like 10 or 12 years ago for the California State Senate. So California was supposed to take effect January 1, 2022, and then Florida passed their law to leapfrog them, and then California rolled it back. I mean, every state has different laws, so it's just, it's pretty crazy right now. 
So basically, the NCA punted to the states, and they're like, you guys decide. It's up to you. So literally, every single state has a different law. If you're an agent working in this area, you've got to follow the laws. They're changing weekly. No state but California and Florida allowed high school athletes to sign name, image, and likeness deals. But now, most of the states, especially in the southeast, where there's just a lot of football money, they've been changing their laws on a weekly basis. So it's pretty crazy trying to keep up with the laws as a lawyer, as an agent. The NCAA, again, is kind of punting. And really, it's why they hired former Governor Baker as the new president of the NCAA, because they figured as a governor of a very powerful state, he had a lot of lobbying ability. So now they're turning him loose on Congress and trying to get Congress to pass a law, which, as we all know, is very unlikely to happen in this session, if ever. So we're, we're really in the Wild West right now. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in a little bit on just like the NCAA as a whole, because I, I talk to my students a lot about this. And like, I think we sometimes lose the idea of like what the NCAA is. And it's really easy to paint the NCAA as kind of this like third party entity that's kind of out here, kind of like a, just a behind the scenes, something like what's the Wizard of Oz reference, you know, but yeah, man behind the curtain, but it's really made up of college presidents athletic and athletic directors, right? So it's a, it's, and for a lot of history, it's been the most powerful schools, the most powerful conferences. And it's just interesting to think about like what the NCAA I think has been involved in, in the history. And like, we all just witnessed March Madness and the NCAA um, tournament. And that's kind of the biggest money maker for the NCAA because they do not actually have control over college football in the playoff. That was something that they lost in a legal battle with University of Oklahoma, I believe. Not Georgia? Maybe Georgia, there's yeah. The, the yeah. 1984 yeah. Georgia. Yeah. And, yeah, in 84. And so there's just so many things going on. And I actually, I started college in 2005 when the NCAA was making rules around like mascots and Native American mascots and what schools could do and what they couldn't do. And it was kind of the same kind of thing where they threw out this like legislation of like, okay, you can't have a Native American mascot. Then, But then it was like, well, what about Florida State who they have a relationship with Seminoles? And so there's a lot of times in which the NCAA, I think, has like input these like rules, but then they haven't actually like thought things all the way through. And they're just things that a lot of times you're just like, wow, the more you learn, I think about how this is this has operated in the in you know the past 20 30 years the more you see kind of the almost dysfunction that has has been happening and as someone who went to the University of Tennessee I'm from the southeast seeing the power of college football firsthand actually was in the same class as Arian Foster who was another athlete who was really outspoken about not getting what they needed just even from a basic you know, nutrition standpoint and getting in trouble for, you know, taking tacos from their their coaches. At the same time, on the flip side, seeing other athletes, other schools, other, this is everywhere. I'm not going to try to paint Tennessee as a, a saint in any way, but seeing how like certain student athletes roll up in new cars and things that are happening behind the scenes that are now kind of being shifted under this, this whole NIL picture. But I just wanted to kind of jump in there and like talk about kind of people who maybe aren't as familiar with NCAA and how honestly dysfunctional <laughs> it, it has been and, you know, and how hard it is because things are just moving so quickly. 
The yeah. NCAA is every school too, right. and it's just impossible for all those all those different schools to agree on the same thing because some of them are huge athletic departments, and some of them are very very tiny athletic departments, and so it's really hard to come up with a policy that that fits everybody. And the NCAA also encompasses Division two and Division three. Right. Right. Yeah, and what was interesting about the states too is how, it, like you said, Debbie, it kind of forced the hand of the NCAA because you would have had all these competitive issues with, well, if I can go to California and make money as a, like if I'm a student in Oregon, why am I going to go? Why am I going to stay in Oregon if I can't make money in Oregon, but I can make money in in California off of my name, image, and likeness? So it would create a complete chaos as far as recruiting and just students and uh, see, I almost said it, college <laughs> athletes, just their their ability to to make money. Well, this fast track evolution has also created some entities that didn't exist before. So they're new players in the spectrum, not athletes, but players, collectives. Uh, third-party marketing companies. I'd like to hear maybe a little bit more about that. I know, Hector, this is something that you've dove into. Yeah, so I've had the opportunity to go out from my agency perspective, talk to multiple collectives around the country, trying to get a better understanding of what they're doing. So collectives just in general are donors, alumni, sports enthusiasts that went to a university and they're trying to Essentially, their main objective is to secure funding for their collective so that they can participate and stay up to date with the NIL. Their goal is to bring the most talented players possible to the university. And so through the collective, they provide this. They usually provide other services like education, but essentially it's to keep up with all of the other schools in the NIL space. And so what's driving a lot of these universities and collectives to stay relevant is the fear of falling behind. And so you see all of these different organizations popping up and it's really a lot of it's fear driven because they don't wanna be the university or the collective left behind while the other ones are making a bunch of progress. And so essentially that, that's what they're doing. And so they're getting a lot of like alumni and they're, they're getting a lot of the different funds from like casual fans, other alumni, boosters, different types of businesses. I have a question. How are the collectives getting away with being 501c3s? Mm. I'm the one lawyer not on this uh, panel, so uh, <laughs> you're asking the wrong person. What's really interesting is these, these collectives, which are support groups financially for the athletic departments, are classifying themselves, categorizing themselves as 501c3s, so when a alum or a supporter makes a million dollar donation in order to sign the top running back, which somehow is not an inducement, which I don't really understand, they're getting a tax write-off. I actually can chime in on this one. Yes, please. Uh, if, if you will. Red White U is completing its application as, uh, to become a 501c3. <laughs> it certainly has been the trend amongst collectives to become a 501c3 nonprofit. Now, the, the key to be able to maintain a 501c3 status is it really needs to be public for the benefit of the public, and there also needs to be numerosity in terms of donors. So you raise very good questions when you say, how can you know, what we read about in the papers, the very large-scale, big-dollar numbers, how can that possibly be justified? Because at the end of a five-year period, the IRS is going to look at this and say, did you have numerosity? 
and there's a formula, but you have to go through and you have to take out your top supporters, and they cannot be more than a certain percentage of your overall donation base. So what I have seen is that there are some larger institutions, football schools, that have an NIL collective that's not a 501c3 and one that is. Now, as a 501c3 for Red White U, our intention is to make sure that we partner specifically and solely with other charitable 501c3 organizations, like a Boys and Girls Club, similar to that. For Seattle U, being a basketball program, there will be basketball-related opportunities, but we're also looking to dive much deeper than that and make connections for our college athletes to be able to create partnerships on their own that we will be able to help fulfill. And then in terms of the donations, we expect to achieve a numerosity based on a subscription model at a fairly low level, all while providing things that donors and, and fans want, which is insider news, access special events. So that really isn't, a, it doesn't speak to football schools and the big issues you talked about, but it is an explanation. And do you actually have events with the basketball team? I'm sorry? Do you have events with the basketball team or basketball players? Yeah, we, we certainly shall. Right now we're in our infancy, so there's, there's more to learn. And frankly, I might as well be sitting on the other side here as well because I'm enjoying this. Yeah, question in the back. Where does an agent versus a collective fit into the conversation when you're dealing with athletes? I think also we need to talk about marketing companies that come into play. So the way to kind of think about it is collectives are out there raising the funds for the NIL space, but they basically oversee the donations and the budget. But a lot of times they don't want to get into like the day-to-day -day logistics. So marketing companies come in and what they basically do is work with collectives as a third party and what they essentially do is a lot of times they'll do like the contract negotiation. They'll do the day-to-day -day operations and logistics. For instance, making sure that the kids, the, the college athletes are staying up on the deliverables. So if there's a deal done in place between a business and a college athlete, they're the ones making sure that the college athlete is either at the appearance or following through on like the social media posts. So that's kind of the way to look at it. They're kind of working like hand in hand. And so agents, the way they come in, at least the way we've been doing it, is representing the kid, helping them get the deals, basically helping them with like mainly like off the field type opportunities. And I'll just add to that. That was one of the main kind of shifts with NIL was the ability for student athletes to have an agent. That was something they were not allowed to do prior. And it gets really complicated, though, because... Anyone who works for an institution, be it a, someone in the athletic department or be a faculty member, they cannot be like any, in any way their agent or advisor on that stuff. And so it gets, it gets really hard because I've, I've had students come to me and be like, well, you know, if a company comes to a coach, can the coach tell their players about this company? You know, it gets really messy really quickly. And then that, I think that leads into how it's, unregulated and unmonitored in a lot of ways. Question up here. Does the fundraising that the collective achieves augment or cut into the fundraising mm. of the institution itself? In other words, you pay a quarterback several hundred million dollars, does that take away money that would otherwise have been donated to this, the program? Or if you pay to a collective, does that feed into the development that, that the institution is having for its general fundraising? Potentially. I would say 
there's a very, I mean, it depends how much of it it is, but absolutely the potential is, is there for that. Bruce Pearl, the basketball coach at Auburn, basically made a statement last summer that said, we can wait on our new locker room. Please donate the money to the collective so that we can get players. So, I mean, no one's making a couple hundred million dollars. The, I mean, the, the collective money is getting high. It's in the hundreds of thousands. But, I mean, it is. It's, it's a zero-sum game. Donors only have X amount of hundreds of thousands or millions to donate, and they, it is. It's either the collective or the athletic department. I mean, maybe Shaney can, can weigh in here. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that it is a zero-sum game. Okay. I, mean, I, I think it certainly has to be thoughtfully pursued. But the reality is there are some that are more interested to participate in this, knowing it's going direct to an organization. And there's, you know, the discussion around it, I think, is interesting to some. So I think that there is some risk of it, but I don't think it's so clear cut to say that it absolutely is taking away from funds that would normally go to an athletics department. For those who don't know, that's Shaney Fink, Seattle University's athletic director. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, it really, I think it really depends. And I think there is so many like of these kind of questions and kind of almost sometimes misconceptions. One of the ones that stood out to me the most was the idea that, oh, well, NIL, you know, it's going to take away from the team. It's going to, it's all going to be student athletes that are, you know, going out for themselves and it's going to tear the locker room apart. Right. And all these things. And it's like, you know, there's already dynamics in a locker room of who gets playing time and things like that. And so, and who gets put on, you know, promotional materials in the athletic department, that kind of thing. So it it definitely, I think that's one of the big misconceptions, but back to the idea of uh, the collectives taking away from the athletic department, I think it is really interesting because as Hector mentioned, like before NIL, it was, it was a different arms race around facilities, right? It was everyone pouring into who can have the coolest, like bougiest locker room, who can have the coolest, like water slide at their, you know, at their facility. And so this is again, big D1, which is, we must mention too, it's like very different from division two and division three, which is often lost in this too, where, and division one, right. It's yeah. yeah, Power five, you know, power five, even, even within the power five, you know, so it's just a really stark, really stark contrast with, and that's the other debate too, right. Is this creating a more of a divide between the haves and the have nots, which I think is a really big issue in college athletics. Question. Speaking of which, what, what, what is the economic opportunity here? Like, how much are some of these top athletes making, and what is the stratification for even within D one and then D two and D three? I mean, I, I would assume that there's some athletes that are making massive amounts of money, and then most are not making much. But what is the top opportunity? Well, I mean, and, and there's there's now two areas of NIL, which like the pure NIL which is what my husband and I have been fighting for, is sponsorship and marketing and appearances and signings. That's like pretty regular numbers. That's like $1,000, $10,000, maybe $50,000 for a top athlete. Some college football stars or alleged stars. I mean, and that's another issue that you sponsor who you think is the starting quarterback and they get a car for the season. So it's more the, the in-kind value or you do a $100,000 sponsorship and then they're benched and you're stuck with the deal. And there's a number of companies who are actually withdrawing or pulling back from their NIL strategies on that side because it hasn't paid off at all. And that's where we're actually going through a lot of that in our class. Then on the other hand, you have the collectives 
and I'll let Hector talk. Yeah, so in talking to some of these collectives, the main thing you'll keep hearing over and over again is the wild, wild west. And it really is because no one really knows what's going on. What are the rules coming down? As you alluded to earlier, it's changing weekly. And so there are players that are trying to get in to capitalize on this opportunity. And there are others that are kind of hanging back because they're fearful of like, I don't want to have anything go against our agency or our company. And so you have all these different players in play. One of the things I've talked to actually was a college basketball coach who said how it's changed is when they're talking to players in the transfer portal, they become a lot more emboldened. Like they're now asking, well, how much am I getting if I transfer your school? So the transfer portal has basically become like free agency. So, like a one-two punch with NIL and the transfer portal coming at the same time yeah. and not having to sit out a year anymore. It's like exacerbated. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> m- most definitely. So um, and going back to your question, what I'm seeing is what was already said, anywhere from 1,000, 5, 10. I think I read someone got like 1.2 million. And that's the typical that you'll see in the NFL. It's the top tier quarterbacks that are getting those type of deals. The big thing to remember here is that Nothing's in writing. The above board marketing sponsorship deals are, these collective deals are not in writing. So one, everything is alleged and what you read in on three, I don't think is true. And two, I think the deals shift once players sign. Yes, correct, yeah. I'm hearing that college basketball deals are now anywhere from like 30,000 to 500,000, mostly for transfer portals, some for incoming freshmen. It's crazy, it's all, ramping up in the past few weeks since the tournament but you know we'll see what these numbers actually are i have never seen a collective deal in writing and it's a little scary going back to the economics kind of piece i know when i was at previously at a division three school and i was looking at the the data around and there's again data from where the numbers coming from could be questioned but it was around like an average d3 athlete that did any kind of nil deal it was an they were making an average of 50 dollars like you know and the average d1 i think has gone from 1800 to 2400 but again these are not the collective deals these are just these are like going for a signing at dick sporting goods getting the loan of a car for the season yeah and there's still a ton of athletes who aren't engaging in this who don't maybe even know what this is because like it wasn't like the ncaa had a big seminar on for every school like here's how you do nil right it was just it was basically up to the schools up to the programs and it's been really a mixed bag of what you'll see across the You've been waiting a while up there. So there's been a lot of discussion about these NIL collectives. So my question is, what is the legal necessity for these collectives to even exist versus just handling all of this through the rest of the athletic department? Well, the (laughs) university for the new NCAA rules can't pay students. And so the university can't negotiate deals or, or help get money to students directly. And so the collectives have, have basically said, you know, hold my Gatorade, I'll take over over for you on, on this side. And the question has been, some schools, you really have to wonder where the difference is between the school and the collective. Other schools, and I'm happy to say the school that I represent, it's very arm's length distance and, and we're very clear. Like, we're not going to get into trouble with the NCAA. You need to stay on your side of the lane. We'll stay in ours. 
Also for public institutions like the University of Washington and other big D1 schools as well, there's state laws that, that prevent you. For example, um, our state constitution in, in Washington, you can't gift state funds. And so you can't have people in your department giving resources to, to athletes or, or any student for, for that matter. And we also have state ethics laws. Title 42 is, is pretty clear. You can't use your position or state resources to benefit yourself or other people. That's a personal liability. That's not even a liability for the university. So you get yourself into trouble with the state ethics board if you do that. So there's a lot, lot of things that really make it legally necessitative for a collective or someone like a collective or, or agents to exist out there. I just wanted to add to that. Lead One did a survey last year with athletic directors and they pulled them and they said, how concerned are the athletic directors with the role of collectives? And 90% said they were very concerned with the role of collectives uh, at the university. So, Was there a question up here? Well, it was more of a comment. And one thing that I found to be interesting coming out of the NCAA is, is this idea that some of the athletes are signing with shoe companies. So like Bronny James, I think millions, I think he's worth like 7.5 million before he's even gone to college. And so he's a Nike guy, or Haley Van Lith is an Adidas person, and then they're going to go to a school that maybe has a, a licensing agreement with a different shoe brand. And then does that stop them from going to that school? Or the licensing agreements that that university has, like with Washington and Adidas, if they had a Nike athlete, how would they do that? And is that limiting who's able to go to certain schools, and how does that all work? It wouldn't necessarily limit where they could go to school, but it would limit if they're a, a Nike ambassador or something, it would definitely limit when they could do that. So for example, with University of Washington being an Adidas school, our agreement's very clear. Everybody who's, when you're participating in official team activities, and that's more than just competitions, pre-game, post-game, anything official where the university would otherwise provide apparel for its athletes, you're gonna be wearing Adidas. Is that a class too? Uh, no, you can wear whatever you want to class. Because that, that didn't used to be the case. I mean, like student athletes used to uh, at least tell me if we were a Nike school, they weren't even allowed to wear, you know, Adidas or anything else just going to class anywhere, you know, really in, kind of in their lives, maybe in their own homes. But you can't, you can't control the students that much. I mean, part of the reality is, is that a lot of the apparel that athletes and in athletic departments get are the majority of the apparel that they have period and that's a whole other thing i suppose but the contracts don't control what students do outside of their official team activities i think that would you'd have a hard time enforcing that so one thing to note while it doesn't prohibit you from going to a school i think it influences you sure. because and this is back to the air movie whoever saw it nike and adidas and under armor a little bit although they've pulled back they're getting involved with AAU when, when these players are 12 years old. So you basically have to pick at 12, 13, 14. If your AAU program is an Adidas program or a Nike program, and this is like the influence before NIL was legal, those programs and the Sunny Vaccaros have fed, <laughs> have fed the top players into Nike schools and into Adidas schools. And so it, it is an issue with Bronny you know, his deals are his own, although most of them are the same deals his father has. The AT&T, Capital One, Nike are all, are all deals that LeBron James has, and so he's able to piggyback off of them. 
My guess is he ends up going to a Nike school. He has not actually chosen what school he's going to. And there's, there's more issues because he's actually not a starter, but he's demanding on being a starter. So that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother couple of worms. But that's been an influence for 25 years. And now it's just playing into NIL Yeah, and well. I think thinking about the macro too here of like how just our entire sports media environment, like the fact that Bronny James is talked about on ESPN and there's like like debates about where's he going to go, you know, and, and just thinking of how the entire landscape has shifted so much with kind of this, yeah, this whole environment. And, yes and no. I mean, yeah. LeBron played in a huge high school game at Poly Pavilion his senior year. It was Poly Pavilion was sold out. And I mean, he was just as talked about. There wasn't social media, but it was on ESPN. Yeah. It's just that there was no social media then, so you weren't getting updates by the 30 seconds. That was the other thing too I was thinking of was like the, the social media impact and how they are, these athletes are expected to be like brands. They're not just expected to be athletes. They they have to have an entire package that they, they're presenting and the fact that they're kind of having that one-on-one. And now we're seeing that Gen Z, they don't watch games. They don't go to games. They watch highlights on their phone. And the impact that has on, you know, big picture ramifications are, are pretty wild too. Well, and the smart athletes are the ones that are really focusing on their social media, building up their followers so that when they get into college and the NFL, NBA, whatever it may be, they're already marketable. They already have two, three, four, five million fans. We have clients in the NFL and it's funny, they have like such power, they have this like ability, this platform to build on it. And I have some that just don't really care about social media. And so it's not like it's automatic. And then you have others that are not as well-known, but they're really focusing on social media to build it up. And so those are the ones that can take advantage of those branding deals because they have this huge following on social media, which is one of the things that a lot of businesses look for in athletes is who are your followers? You know, how big's your audience? Kelly. I'm curious to go back to the branding question briefly. When we talk about athletes who would be influenced by, you know, as to which school they're going to based on the brand that the school is aligned with, Nike, Adidas, et cetera. Clearly, you're then potentially going to have competing, right? So you've got a basketball player who is an Adidas kid and a football player who's a Nike kid. That's got conflict. Fanatics entered the arena recently with a signing NHL jersey, right, for, I think, starting next season. So I'm curious about that. And then what does that do from the university's perspective, right? UW and Seattle U just went to Adidas several years ago, right, when you all are looking to make a change, and potentially you've got somebody on your rosters who then are that creates conflict, right? Like it's just an interesting dynamic and brings a whole new spin to that space, those conversations. I personally don't think the kids care what the school is affiliated with now. And with NIL, I think the mindset now is how am I being taken care of? You know, what's What's in it for me? What can I get out of this? So I'm just speaking personally, but I, I don't think that the athletes that I talk to care who the school's affiliated with, Nike or, or Adidas. It's like, how can I further my life beyond football and what can I get out of it is what I see. Like if they're a Nike kid, is Nike going to care if they're going to the Adidas school? I'm curious. Yes. Oh, if they have yeah. the deal? Yes. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I don't think a lot of kids have deals specifically. These are the like the very few that have deals with Nike and Adidas. Like 99.9% don't have deals yet. They've just know? been getting their free shoes and gear right. every summer through AAU since they've been 12, 13, 14. Right. 
Over here. Yeah, I'm curious with uh, the potential banning of TikTok, the impact <laughs> that's going to have on the social media component. If you look at the college age, their percentage of TikTok use is much higher than like at the professional level. And so when you see all of a sudden potentially losing a half or two thirds of your base, it, it, it'll be interesting to see, won't it, to how that shifts if TikTok is banned or, and do you see that impacting some of your potential students? I could say from the athletes that participate, mine are a little bit older, so they're not like this younger. I mean, when I say older, they're like 25, 26, 27. <laughs> but it is interesting if they put a post on social media and did the exact same post on TikTok, they'll get like eight times to 10, 15 times the engagement. So I would think they're, they're, they are concerned. So that's the only thing I could speak to. I mean, I'm the same where most of my clients are older. Most of them are retired athletes or current broadcasters. So I'll, I'll kind of give the example of my top influencer broadcaster is Annie Agar. So she's on all three platforms. She likes Instagram the best, but she gets the most engagement on Twitter, actually. Every video she puts up, she gets a million views. So that's what the sponsors and the marketers are paying for. It wouldn't be great for her if TikTok goes away, but I mean, we've actually been more worried about Twitter going away because of the way Elon Musk is handling it and the way that the algorithms are working that you're basically being like force fed people who you don't want to follow. And I think that's actually a bigger issue than if TikTok goes away. Up here. We've talked a lot about the way the athletes can benefit off of NIL, but back on this idea of like making yourself into a brand and as a business and often cases going to high school at such a young age, having to make yourself into a brand, what can be the impact on athletes in a dehumanizing way to have to make yourself and your person into a brand that you're selling rather than just, you know, being at a young age and exploring who you are, but having to present it also? Well, and this is one of the main things we're teaching in our class and, and emphasizing. You do not have to do NIL deals. Like, once you get to college, your priorities should be school and your team. And it does take time. I mean, you know, whether you're in the 20 hours a week or 10 hours a week, your, your team, your sport is taking up a lot of time. Do you have the time to do deals on top of that and make appearances and sign things and create, I would say, like 80% of deals are based on creating social media content and posting it. So does your school have somebody who's going to create that for you or do you have to do it yourself and edit it and get it up there? So that's definitely one of the things we emphasize. You do not have to do it if it's you know, going to take too much time, if it's not who you are, especially for basketball and football because your goal is to become a professional and this is just a stop along the way. The vast majority of athletes are there to go to college and have a college experience and play their sport. And I think a, a minority of them are super interested in developing a brand. A lot of them just, just wanna be athletes at, at their school. The University of Washington has a robust NIL education program and, and the people who want to, to learn about developing brands certainly can. But yeah, your, your question is fair. And I think that a lot of people they, they're like, I didn't go to college to become a brand. I, I went to college because it's the next stop in, in my journey, right? And then also people who choose, like people are choosing to develop their brands. Or yeah. I don't think anybody's getting forced to have a presence. If you just want to be a participant on, on a team, you absolutely can do that. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show.
But let's dive into NIL deals themselves, the nuts and bolts of it. How are these deals negotiated and structured? Can anybody speak to that for us? Sure. So, I mean, I can't speak to the collective deals because most of them are not written and they're all a little shady. But the, uh, the marketing sponsorship branding deals are really just regular marketing deals. I mean, it's the same type of deals that I've been doing when I was at Wasserman that I was doing for current athletes and that I'm doing for retired athletes. There's a couple of caveats. When you sign an NIL athlete to your agency, the agreement automatically ends at either the end of their eligibility or when they leave school, it is over. So then if you wanna continue representing this athlete in their pro career or whatever they're doing next, you actually have to sign a new agreement. And last year when like Paolo Bancaro came out, all these other agencies were after him. So CAA represented him for his one, you know, his six months at Duke. And then he actually switched agents, which is a risk because you're putting a lot of time and money into it, but it's a free agency market. And then the actual marketing deals, again, are the same as a regular marketing deal. It's a regular marketing deal. You're looking for the term. You're looking for what you're providing. You're looking for what the company is giving to you. And you are looking you know, for the compensation. And I think you know, the really interesting, you know, the really important thing is what, what are the obligations of the athlete to receive the compensation. And again, you just need to limit it to a term where they're still gonna be in college. From an agency perspective, what are the best practices when you're advising a college athlete or negotiating an NIL deal? For us, really trying to help them understand the tax component, I think that's the biggest issue with a lot of these kids signing NIL deals is not understanding the tax component and a lot of people surrounding or their like inner circle not understanding it or even caring about this tax component. And so for us, it's really like education and then making sure they understand the deal and you know what the deliverables are on, on their side of it. I'm curious too from, from your perspective because what I've seen is that, like I mentioned, like this is the first time college athletes can have agents, right? But there's no regulation as far as like they have to be registered with NCAA or they have to be registered. It's actually state by state. State by state, right? So, but there's some definitely, I've heard of some shady stuff and like how students are signing deals and agents are taking, you know, really 25%, right, 30%. Yeah. Like the average marketing deal in sports is 15 to 20%. Some, you know, with, with leverage negotiated down to 10%. And it, it, it really is state by state. So in California... You have to be registered with the state if you represent athletes who are in any league with a collective bargaining agreement. So NBA, NFL, MLB, and hockey. And then they didn't really know how to deal with NIL athletes. So they threw, okay, if, I mean, if you're going to represent NIL athletes, you need to register with the state as well. It's called the Miller-Ayala Act. Some states have a really high fee, like $5,000, $10,000, Tennessee, New York, Florida, you've got to pay the state a lot up front, so you've got to really, really commit it to this. I think the, the California fee is $50, but you have to carry a minimum of $500,000 liability insurance. So there actually are state requirements. I do not know how well they're being enforced. I don't know all the state laws. I did have an intern whose husband was working for an agency, and that was like his summer project to look up <laughs> all the requirements of every state. 
Can you paint a picture of what college athletes are getting in NIL deals? We've done deals with like Burger King with some of our athletes. I'm just trying to think some of the other deals we've done. Burger King, we did one with like a local auto dealership. Surprisingly, that's probably one of the biggest ones that the college kids want. They want a vehicle to, to get to and from class. And it's become a problem because you can get a, a deal with a dealership, but now like every kid wants it. And so now these dealerships are like, well, I can't give away thousands of cars. I've got to figure out who to work with. So it's just funny how supply and demand works. But, and then a lot of them are like signings, appearances, like speaking engagements. And they're anywhere from like a thousand to we've done like, uh, I think 25,000 is one of the higher ones that we've done. Motorized scooters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So through my USC class, we're actually doing real life NIL deals and the students are, are going to shoot the social media marketing campaigns. So, I mean, but I, I kind of did this through my connection. So I just don't know how realistic this is, but I actually brought in NBC Universal, Coca-Cola, Moves Insoles, which is Damian Lillard's company and Lemon Perfect Water. So we're actually doing deals with really big brands. However, for not a lot of money, we've said, hey, a thousand, two thousand you know, whatever you feel like the students are supposed to negotiate this. Lemon Perfect Water was one of the ones who was burned where they did a six-figure deal with a college quarterback, and they just felt like they did not get the bang for their buck at all. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly it seems like a, a private company trying to get a return on investment is going to look past the expectation that this isn't supposed to be pay-for-play or performance on the field. Am I correct in assuming that the athletes that are getting these NIL deals are top-end athletes? Yeah, and that's actually what we're trying to do in our classes. We're, we're trying to bring in beach volleyball and volleyball and track and field and some of the athletes who aren't. I mean, from what I've heard at USC, only football players and like one or two basketball players are getting deals. Now, in the SEC, it's different. The SEC is just, you know, college sports are everything and a lot more athletes are getting deals. So it's football is number one, men's basketball is number two. Women's basketball is number three, and I think it's going to get bigger after the last tournament and how prominent some of the players are and how vocal they are and how big their followings are on social. And then the fourth biggest one is actually gymnastics, women's gymnastics. There are a couple of huge influencers, and I don't know if we're going to get into this later with some of the dangers of it as well. Some of the deals that aren't done with agents, though, are way lower, lower value, though. Sometimes if I can put a picture of you student on my wall that you ate at my teriyaki joint, your lunch is free. And and a lot of those deals can be like that. I just want to have a rant too, because I (laughs) saw a lot early on with barstool sports where athletes from any division, literally any school could go on and fill out a Google form and put in their profile, their barstool athlete, and they got a free t-shirt. And basically, it's just kind of free promotion for Barstool, which Mm -hmm. many athletes, I don't think, understand or many students don't understand just how controversial. Oh, and much for their rights, they're giving their rights away. That's actually a a great segue. I represented a backup USC quarterback last season who never played. He was injured. But USC had this marketing company called Boulevard. They don't sign deals with the athletes. They sign deals with the athletic department, which is not exactly what the idea of NIL was, but the athletic departments want help. So there's Altius and Brander and Influencer. And then there was this company, Boulevard, that USC did the deal with. And they kind of didn't really make it. And now they're, they're reorganizing. But 
they sent DocuSigns out. If you want to be represented, they would just send a DocuSign to every football player. And so my client got it, and I was like, no, 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 you're not signing this. We need this in a Word document, and I'm going to redline it, and if they make the changes, then you can sign it. Because you were basically giving away, like, unlimited rights to, they could use your social media posts in perpetuity. It did end when you left school, but some of the other term was fuzzy. So they allowed us to do this. I redlined it, got it back. Then there was a deal, really the only deal they brought in was that every football player could get a motorized scooter if they did a post on Instagram or whatever. And so I'm like, I need it in Word, not just your DocuSign to the athlete to sign. And it was the same thing. Like they could have the rights to use this post in perpetuity. There was no end. And I'm like, okay, this needs to end by December 31, because if USC goes to a bowl game, then there might be other deals. And they were fine making the changes, but you know, of the, the 80 players, probably 15 of them had some sort of representation, and the rest of them just signed it as is. There's a question up here. Yeah, I was wondering if you can speak to the prospective NIL value that's being offered to student athletes in the recruiting process. <laughs> there shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, there's supposed to be the two rules are ours, no pay for play and no inducement. But there is. They're going on visits <laughs> and they're saying to them, we perceive that you're going to be a $300,000 a year athlete. Not the, 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 not the athletic department. The school wouldn't say that. Gosh, at least I hope they're not. I mean, <laughs> what they can do, they can say, this is what student athletes in our department have done in NIL. This is why the Seattle area is a, is a great place if you're looking to build a brand, but they won't do a, a valuation. If the student athlete asks, in the, you know, how much am I gonna get if I come here? Uh, I mean, that was the question. The response is, I don't know. You're not, we're not gonna pay you. If you get a scholarship, if you get the Alston, the Alston money, which is $5,000, I mean, we can talk about that, but from an NIL perspective, the athletic department won't say. This is when the collectives come into play. And so, and this is why it's the Wild West and it's it's scary for agents and for families because they're under the table deals with the collectives. They're not in writing. And certain things are allegedly being offered. The only big deal in writing that actually one of my clients, Stuart Mandel of The Athletic, they, they were able to get this written deal for a incoming quarterback at Tennessee. So it was a four-year deal. Some of the deals were one-year deals. It was a four-year deal, and it was worth $8 million. But it wasn't really worth $8 million. I don't know what the base money was, but it was only worth $8 million if Tennessee won the national championship, if he was the player of the year, if they you know, won the SEC championship. There's all these contingencies built in, and because most of them aren't in writing, a lot of them aren't actually happening. So it's it's all very complicated and messy, and a lot of the numbers that are being thrown around really aren't there. Up here. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on if you think collective bargaining will ever come into play with this, knowing that that's a kind of a checks and balances in the professional leagues for players you know, to get involved in video games and, and whatnot. But we have such a diverse group of schools and states and laws. I'm curious if you guys think might, might come, if anything, of that 
maybe in conjunction with employment and things like that. The collective bargaining is going to be addressed. It's one of the good things to be a public institution instead of a private one because private institutions are subject to the NLRB and there's currently an NLRB action happening in Southern California with USC and it freaked everybody out because it initially the complaint had UCLA in it as well and UCLA is a public institution and people were saying how the heck is the NLRB, NLRB have jurisdiction over a public institution they re were recently dropped out but the general counsel for the NLRB is said that all students are employees and you know once a, the O'Bannon decision happened there was this slow train lights coming down the tracks you could see NIL was coming and now you can kind of see whether whether or not an employment model is going to be coming that's that's one there's a lawsuit going on too right multiple that's, lawsuits yeah it, it could completely change the model if athletes are employees or if certain athletes are employees because then you're not going to need the NLI. You're basically going to have to sign an employment agreement. You're going to be paid X, which will probably come out of the shoe money and the media money. But then you won't be able to get your own side deals and the, the collectibles will go away. We can talk about employment in another seminar and my hair will be grayer. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of just brander and those things, uh, those third parties can be useful because when you talk about video games, when you talk about baseball, trading cards, there's university IP involved and then the name, image, and likeness of the athletes. And those companies can help bring them together because there is no union to go to for, for student athletes. And so they go through this process of like, here, sign this thing. And, yeah. and the agents are like, no, don't sign that thing. But everybody's like, I want to be in the video game. And yeah. they're telling me that this is the only way to do it. But it, it's... It's the Wild West. We keep saying it because it's true, but it, it helps bring the university IP together so the university can say, here you can use our marks and the, the For this students. type of deal and that type yeah, of deal, but not yeah, this other kind of deal. Exactly. That, that was something I think we should talk about a little bit more as regards to the NIL deals is how like university marks and stuff get used. Because I, I may be wrong, but I remember reading about, I believe it was Notre Dame, where originally they were like, if you get an NIL deal, their athletic department was like, you can't use anything. You can't use yeah. our colors. You can't yep, use anything. Yep. But then they changed their mind. It's actually a problem. And I, it should be easier at private schools and public schools because there's not as many approval processes, but then on the flip side, other schools are like all in. ASU has made a blanket statement, use whatever marks you want, wear your jerseys, you know, any any kind of deals you want. Yeah, and like if they were gonna shoot a commercial on campus, they would still have to pay to like for the facilities or things like that, right? Maybe, or they Maybe might. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, ASU is trying to be really yeah. supportive and, and the quarterback whose Florida deal wasn't there, Miami deal, he's actually ended up at ASU. I see the questions piling up, so I'm gonna, I've been ignoring the back row. Let's start over there. This question is probably for Debbie and James. There seems to be this idea that there will be or needs to be a correction either legally or from the NCAA in regards to NIL. What is the time frame for that happening? Because James, you keep mentioning the Wild Wild West. Debbie, you, you have your thoughts and opinions about NIL and how it's currently being utilized. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm calling this NIL 1.0. There's definitely going to be changes. I think it's going to take five to 10 years. But unless the NCAA gets a federal law passed, which is what they are aiming for, to say, you know, NIL is restricted to X, Y, and Z, and collectives are illegal, and then we just have these brander deals and influencer deals and, and whatever appearance deals you can get. That is one scenario. 
I definitely do not see a law getting passed before 2024. And I don't know what happens after that. The other side is what we were just talking about, about more of collective bargaining and employment where either all athletes or some of the top team athletes actually sign employment agreements and they are paid to go to the schools and that is how they're paid for their, their NIL. And then all of a sudden the media contracts and the sponsorship agreements are divided up between the athletic departments, the university and the athletes, which you know, is what some of the lawsuits are happening now. And, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. It's the same pendulum, right? Whatever area is too regulated. So legal action happens and the regulations vanish or, or get taken away. So the pendulum swings the other way and there's not enough regulation and people are getting away and it's not it's unfair. And so you, you bring it back. I think we're still in the swing away from regulation in, into the Wild West that we've been calling and it still has a little ways to swing. But yeah, it's untenable right now. 50 different state laws and those state laws change on an annual basis. It's and, not a monthly basis. And even before all this was happening, there were still some of the people were on the, on the athletic department side, but some people on the other side were let out of handcuffs and arrested by the FBI. So there was regulation that still needed to happen before they took the regulations away. And so I agree, we're probably a couple of years out. I think it, there are senators, there's people up in Congress who are interested. Our Senator Maria Cantwell is in one of the committees that legislation like that would have to go through. Senator Cantwell's a huge Gonzaga fan, so um, she cares about smaller schools and, and smaller athletic budgets and trying to get her to care about bigger schools too. But And, and Senator Cory Booker, who I actually went to Stanford with, He's been very involved in this. He actually believes that universities should pay athletes and the senator from Connecticut. So there's lots of different opinions in, in the Senate as well. And I think what we'll end up seeing, if I had to predict, will be something that will be a little bit Senator Booker, a little bit former Senator Wicker from Mississippi, which will have what I'll loosely call a, a student and athlete bill of rights where some things like UW and other Pac-12 schools do already, like guaranteed medical coverage and post-eligibility medical coverage, things that, that a lot of schools aren't doing will include things like that, but the compromise will be it'll be other things, like you have to stop suing the NCAA and, and these conferences. And, <laughs> and, and they it, might, and maybe collectives become illegal or, or something. Or the other thing that's been talked about is that collectives aren't allowed to be 501c3s, in which case when the donors who are donating 500000 a million dollars as a charity, it then just becomes a payment, then they may drop out. But I mean, it's, there's so many different scenarios. We, we really can't predict what's going to happen. Where the rubber will meet the road for <laughs> institutions, though, will be protecting amateurism. And, and it'll be no pay for play, no inducements, those sorts of protections. Also with the back row. So kind of going off of that, the first NIL infraction was the Commander Twins. Yeah. Took two years, and it was, I mean, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, are on the infraction itself, and then also just the implementation of any type of regulations. Do people know what she's talking about? So there's been one, there's been one slap on the wrist from the NCAA in the what are we going on, eight, uh, almost two years that the NIL has been legal, and it was against 
the University of Miami who had the Cavender twins who are very pretty and also actually good basketball players as they showed because they took Miami uh, women's team to their first Sweet 16 ever. They were at Fresno State and they were given a better deal to transfer to Miami. And But before they signed their letters of intent, the coach set up a dinner with Miami's biggest booster who runs a crypto and whatever company. And he's he's been in the news a ton for like doing a deal with every single football player. So it was a super like small infraction. They haven't gone after any sort of inducement pay for play. They just got a slap on the wrist because they were having dinner with the booster before they were actually at the university. So it was an illegal dinner. So the one thing they've chosen to enforce is just so minor compared to all the rest of this. Well, part of it, and I'm sorry, like I think everybody just collective facepalm when this happened. <laughs> we just celebrated 50 years of Title IX. One of the major concerns about NIL creeping in is that it's going to benefit male athletes more than, than female athletes. And the first target that the NCAA chooses after two years of silence are female athletes. It's just... Ridiculous. Incredibly tone deaf, <laughs> if nothing else. They did decide, they had the option to, to have another year of eligibility, but they decided to forego that and everyone was kind of surprised, but they literally just signed with WWE Wrestling. That's going to be interesting. I did not hear that. Because they weren't there, they're not good enough basketball players to, yeah. to make it in the WNBA. So they needed to find some other area they're going to be paid for athletics. I was curious to know the panel's uh, views on the impact of all of this on campus culture and the mission of universities. I am from the South, at least my current institution's in the Southeast, and they just got rid of a football coach and a basketball coach because they want to compete with Georgia. And my institution does not, we don't compete with Georgia. We get beat up by Georgia every November. <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of pushback with faculty and the like saying, this opens the gates for, well, it will, it will harm our academic integrity because we're going to have students that are going to be interested in being athletes first rather than students, and we're going to be spending all this money on coaches trying to compete with Southeast Conference schools. So I'm just curious as to what the, the panel's view is of all of this on the mission of universities in higher education. At some point, university regents are going to ask, particularly at public institutions. We're a state agency, we're an institution of higher education. What are we doing managing a professional sports team? And all of these decisions, all of these media deals, all of these NCAA rules are passed by academics, people who are running institutions of higher education. So I think that that, that impact can't be understated. And well, I will just argue too that like, I mean, if you look at coaches' salaries already, like that's that's already been ballooning for you know over a decade. And I always like showing my classes, like the highest paid public employee in pretty much every state is a college football or college basketball coach. So I think this is interesting because it does kind of shift the power a little bit, right? It's not just the people in those positions of coaching and administration that are getting the money, but it's it's definitely interesting when you think about kind of academic integrity and things like that. And I mean, that was the big debate too with the conference shifting, right? Of like, which institutions that used to be like, well, you know, institutions that are kind of like-minded with academics and things like that. And now it's more about media deals than, than anything, so. Yeah, 
I don't think NIL will have as big an impact on that issue yeah. as things that might be coming down the road. Shane. I was curious about the risk, legal risk for institutions related to stipulations they might put with using trademarks or colors or, you know, you can't go on campus, off campus, but kind of the legal ramifications of those different decisions. Well, the legal risks, I mean, trademarks and IP, trademarks in particular, you, your trademarks rights last as long as you're policing and enforcing them. I mean, ask the good people at Kleenex and Popsicle how, how well it went for them when they let everybody use their <laughs> trademarks. It, they're, they're not trademarks anymore and they don't have rights in them. When you have IP at a public institution, it's state property as well. And so there's an extra level there. And so the risk is the brand just being wiped away or not having any, any rights in it. You can do deals that involve university marks. Typically, for example, a lot of these deals are for sponsorship. They're not for advertisements or, or things like that to avoid unrelated business income tax and, and looking like a public institution is advertising for a, a third party. And so, in candidly, use of marks has been a big part of the conversation the last five, six years. There's so many different ways to answer this question. There's also more than, than athletes at the university that want to use university marks. We have esports teams, we have clubs who want, who want to affiliate with the university and, and we have a policy about how registered student organizations can use the marks in a way that makes it clear it's not an official university department or, or activity, but it's affiliated with the university and the shift has been towards student athletes being treated like registered student organizations. And this is aside from co-branding things like, like baseball cards and trading cards and jerseys and, and things like that. But you can enter into those agreements, but the university has an obligation to protect its, its IP. Particularly, I would say it's a higher burden in a public context because you can get in trouble with the state auditor's office if you just let people use it and, and the state ethics laws, like I mentioned. I want to go back to the question about twins. And we talked when we were, you know, as a group, when we were preparing for this day about the gender equity issues and the risks to female athletes. And so I wonder if, like, maybe you tried, like, Natalie was talking about that. I want to pick on you. But, you know, because that's, you know, something that needs to be discussed in the context of, of what we're, you know, learning about. Yeah. Now, this is my boss, so I have to answer. Um, <laughs> no, I, I've kind of enjoyed the progression here because it was early on one of those kind of like boogeyman arguments was, well, this is going to hurt female athletes. When in turn, female athletes, for many of them, unfortunately, college is their peak earning time because there aren't professional leagues or if there are professional leagues, they're not maybe necessarily as supported or as you know widespread. And I was lucky enough to go to the Women's Final Four this year and just seeing the energy and excitement and the just the attention that was on that that women's final four and these these athletes and so for for female athletes they are getting i think um a chance to really do some really great things and brands know that female athletes normally are better at social media so they are noticing that that they have an advantage in, in that space whereas speaking kind of holistically there's just been more of a a trend in that direction that female female athletes have more followers, they have more engagement, and kind of more influence overall. So, been kind of nice to see that shift. But there still are problems because you see, like the Cavender twins, for example, 
There's a really great guy I want you everyone to look up. His, his name is Matt Brown. He has a newsletter called Extra Points. It's like a, all about the business of college sports. And it's well worth, I think it's like seven bucks a month, but it's well worth because he really does the business what everyone's talking, what we're all talking about today. But he actually showed one of my classes. He was acting as kind of someone who was doing NIL deals with athletes. And he showed us like the top athlete deals at this time. And it, for the women, it was all cisgender, white, mostly blonde female women, you know, who, that who are willing to pose in bathing suits. Exactly. Exactly. And Libby Dunn, who's the gymnastics athlete at LSU. LSU. If you look at her post, it's, it's almost like an OnlyFans, you know, it's, it's really not, not great, you know, for a, a lot of what I think many of us are hoping for with the progression of women's sports. So it's kind of like a, a little bit of a backward step. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was kind of an issue I was talking about before where women are getting more and more deals and not a majority of them, but a bigger percentage of deals However, there is a big issue, and I think I forgot to include this article, but there's a great New York Times article where Tara Vanderveer, coach at Stanford, really spoke out and she said, I think we're going backwards because most of the deals for women's basketball players and all of them for gymnasts are sex. You're selling sex and not their athletic abilities. And it's, it's very discouraging. And what's happened with Livy Dunn, which is not exactly just her her being a gymnast, her mom got her on Twitter when she was 13. So by the time she was being recruited, she already had millions of followers. It was literally July 1st was right before her freshman year. So it all tied in really well. And I'm sure LSU got the biggest deals for her to go there. And there was a billboard of her in Times Square literally that next week. But it's actually become scary. There's videos outside of the meets and these teenagers and 20-something men, they have to put up metal guardrails and they're like shaking them going, we want Livy, we want Livy, but not in like that nice of a tone. I mean, I really am scared that she's going to be attacked. So there's definitely a negative. Question up here. What are agencies or, or third parties or collectives looking for when they're signing these, these college athletes? What's the relationship that you all have and, and what does your role play in linking like brands with the athletes? Is that most of the schools or the collectives? I can speak from the agency standpoint. We're basically looking for players that we've identified that we think will make it to the pro league because for us, it's kind of a funnel into our agency to represent them, specifically like in the NFL. And so the players that we represent are either relationships we have with other players or their parents, they ask us to represent their kids in NIL, but the underlying reason is, you know, we're trying to create a funnel to, you know, to represent them eventually in the NFL. The collectives, I think, I can't speak for them. I'm not a part of a collective, but the feeling that I get is they're really focusing just on the two major sports, football and basketball. basketball. I don't well, know. Apparently like, now women's volleyball is getting involved. Probably as well. The star, the best, the best player in the country is at USC, and the head coach of USC indoor volleyball told me that a bunch of collectives have called her and said, go in the transfer portal and we'll get you paid. Yeah, I, I don't know how much social responsibility or what they're, I think really it's, they just don't want to fall behind. These are the sports that generate top dollar for the universities. So again, I can't speak for on behalf of the collectives, but I think really their main objective is to pull as much money as possible so they can attract these players to come play for the school. 
right here. To what extent is a collective, if it is completely divorced from the school, to what extent is a collective regulated by Title IX? And does a collective potentially give a school the power to do something uh, indirectly in, in the way of, of unequal treatment that it could not do directly under Title IX? The collective has no obligations under Title IX if it's a completely separate 501c3 or, or other entity. And to the second point, that's one of the major concerns moving forward is that collectives will be used or perhaps are already being used in an inappropriate way in that regard. There are some women's sports specific collectives out there though. I know the University of Tennessee and University of Oregon, I believe they have female focused only, but then you get into the kind of this fragmentation, right? Of like there are schools that have five collectives and then now you're seeing, I think it was Vanderbilt just yesterday announced like two of their collectives are merging because they were comp basically competing, right? So it definitely creates a really kind of messy landscape. But. In the center? I wanted to circle back to when we were talking about gender equity with these deals and the way that female athletes and other sexualized athletes have a different way that their marketing may be on social media or otherwise. And just thinking about like, rather than looking at these athletes and shaming or like taking kind of this moralistic stance to the way they're trying to make money, which is like, you know, if we're going to say it's about sex, like that's similar to shaming sex work, but in a society that makes that all that these athletes are valued for, like they're using the tools at their disposal to try and balance that gap. Like if we're not going to be valuing women's sports, they're trying to do what they can to, you know, make ends met and not necessarily shaming them rather than shaming the systems that make that necessary. The other thing I'd say for women, I do think like they have this opportunity if they really like work on their social media accounts. Cause, because at the end of the yeah. day, that's really what brands are after. Like I can have a really outgoing, you know, gregarious football player, but if his social media like doesn't have the numbers, they're really not interested because the, the reach for them is not that big. So I think women in sports do have this opportunity. It's not easy, a lot of people aren't into it, but if they really take the time to build that social media, they do have this opportunity to connect with these brands that are looking to, you know, increase their social reach. I think you're dead on as back. We should be critiquing the systems and not the individual athletes because, and that was, I think, one of the critiques of Tara and some of the people who are critiquing these, these athletes is that it shouldn't be critiquing them. It should be critiquing the system that they're a part of. So my question is, how do you think that the history and the experience of college coaches can inform NIL for student athletes or athletes in general? since they have been able to benefit from sponsorship and their own image and likeness for a much longer period than athletes have. I'm not sure how much, in my experience, coaches haven't had a ton of separate NIL deals. We've had some popular coaches and they have had the ability to commercialize their brand. They can use that to, to teach students in their programs about how to, but. I think they would funnel that experience into a larger educational, like the, the class that, that you teach at USC. There's there's one that we have at UW that to encourage people to learn about brands and, and coaches who have, have that experience can add that experience to, to the pool of of experience and, and what you can pass on to students who are interested in learning about how to develop their brands moving forward.
Most of what I've seen around coaches has been they don't want to touch NIL. They don't like it. They don't want to be involved in it. And uh, it ta- they, there is, that, again, that misconception that it takes away from their sport and their team. But if you look at their contracts with the university, generally there is bonus money attached to using their name, image, and likeness for speaking at... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's not bonus money. It's basically how public institutions get away with paying the women's basketball coach 600,000 and the men's basketball coach 4.5 million because both of the coaching contracts are 500,000 and then it's layered in, oh, you're getting 2 million for the shoe deal, you're getting 1 million for appearances and then you're getting another 500,000 for doing the radio, you know, the 10 minutes of radio after every game. It's part of the structure of contracts, (laughs) yeah. I mean, it's base salary is not the same I mean, there's not a in California. Team. It has to be the same. Oh, okay. In, in in Washington, it doesn't. And there's there's not a women's football team to right. to compare the, but the basketball. Head coach of, basketball, there is in, in volleyball at some schools. The the revenue generating sports tend to have the the appearances, and and that's where you know your apparel companies and and multimedia rights companies want to have appearances on behalf of the university. By the way, not not in an individual capacity. This is a whole other thing. There's coaches who have personal corporations and you're really entering into a contract with two separate entities, it, it gets complicated fast. Forgot to bring up when we were doing some of the Title IX discussions, there's actually a bill in the California State Senate mm-hmm. that NIL deals have to be compliant with Title IX, which everybody's freaking out about and saying like, okay, now we're not going to get top football players and men's basketball players. Again, it's just, it's just in the early stages, but it's the same state senator who push through the first NIL bill, Representative Skinner. So it's going to be interesting. That's you What know, does that the, mean, though, compliant with Title IX? So that the deals have to be the same for men and women. So if a company's doing a deal, if they do a deal, they have to do one with a man and a woman? or Yeah, or if, if you're doing, they, the amounts need to be the same. I think what they're really targeting is the collectives, but you, I don't know how you can target them because they're all kind of below board. I, I have no idea how this is going to shake out, but I just thought I'd bring it up. Nice. Thanks. You're aware of it. Back room. So I think someone brought her name up earlier, but Haley Van Lith is in the transfer portal right now. I'm curious your thoughts on not only outstanding TV contracts, but what really is the role of collectives and donors and how that's impacted basically the free agency pool for the potential. That's why she's in the transfer portal. I mean, she also graduated. Like, I don't know. I know, but she led her team to the Final Four, so you'd think that there's a chance that they would be back next year and she has that extra year of eligibility. She's she's in the transfer portal because she's shopping for the highest deal. Do you think that's wrong? I think it's sketchy, but it's it's what's happening right now. And she also put it that she did not want to be contact either. So that kind of leans to the idea that there's already been a decision made yeah. of where she wants to go. My thought is that we showed out so great for her in Seattle that she's going to come back west somewhere <laughs> at, the, at the regional. That's just an idea, but yeah, <laughs> sorry to cut you off. But. What's the process? Like, she puts her name in the transfer portal and then do the collectives? Like, what? I'm just confused about what the role the collectives are playing they're, they're, in. They're calling her agent or her parents if she doesn't have an agent and offering amounts, and then they've got to sort through what's real and what's not, and... Is there going to be a, a starting role for her? Because again, now everything's separate. The collectives are on one hand, the athletic department and the coaches are on the other hand. So the collectives can be throwing out money, but where they're throwing out money, there are already maybe two starting guards lined up for next year. And does she want to go there? 
to get her $300,000 from the collective but not be guaranteed a starting role. And they can't talk to each other. That, so That's what I was going to say. <laughs> the, the, the coaches in the collectives can't, like the coaches can't say, hey, these are the players we've identified. They, they can't do that, but, you know, whether it's being done, yeah. it, to me, is like, well, how does collective know who to offer money to? So it's a lot of this kind of gray area that they're operating in. But, yeah, the transfer portal, like I said, has essentially become free agency in sports. You're asking whether it's right or it's wrong. I don't really have an opinion on that, but it's just it's the way it is, <laughs> and it's what the coaches are dealing with. And so if they want to compete and be at the top level athletically – they know they need to have, you know, funding from the collective so that they can lure these kids into their program. And I feel like in big time, the haves of college sports, this is just literally collectives are glorified boosters where there's a still the same problems, right? Where a booster wants this kid yeah. and the coach wants this kid and like there's they're coming to a head and all the while that poor ADs are just trying to manage all of it, which props to all and of lawyers. you. And lawyers. Yeah, props to all you in athletics. Well, and, is, and it should also be said that yeah. this isn't just starting now. This right. has happened yeah, before. Is, now it's just like a, a yeah. quote unquote above yes. the table. This is yeah. always, this has always happened in this, it's just now bringing to the forefront and above the table, so to say. So, but it's not like this is a, a new thing that's presented itself. It's always been going well, on. Before, it was, a lot of it was managed by the shoe companies, which is why you ended up, unfortunately, having assistant coaches, but not the head coaches, which is very sketchy. And a couple of Adidas reps went to jail because they were the ones who were given the cash to funnel yeah. to the families. And the suit maker. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and it, it kind of goes back to, I think, to that idea of what, what is amateurism? What is everyone really fighting for? I, the past couple of years, I've been on a NCAA innovations grant review board. And what we do is we look at institutions, submit kind of ideas around what could we do to improve, you know, just overall athletics. And these past two years, the two biggest things, I think this gets back to this idea of what social media and all this stuff is, the two biggest issues was mental health and just financial education. And I think that shows a lot around like, what are we doing in college athletics? How are we taking care of students and just the bigger, bigger picture? So I just wanted to add that little anecdote as well. Well, I think the financial side is a big issue because most sports agencies do not provide financial guidance because they are not accountants. There, there are some who, who do, but they really shouldn't. They're either lawyers or agents or whatever. And I mean, one, it's different by state, every state, has a different law in California. If you earn $400, you have to file a state tax return. You can get $12,000 of in-kind, so you can probably get use of a car, but $400 cash, you have to file a tax return. I'm pretty sure that not only have these athletes never filed tax returns, their parents probably can't help them, and they're not being given guidance when they need to file a tax return what are the issues? What are the deadlines? And I mean, I think that's the best thing that athletic departments can do is bring in some financial education. Yeah, one of the coolest deals I did see, I think this was a couple of years ago, or maybe the first year when it was HR Block, I think, did a deal with a bunch of women athletes and they were literally trying to help promote tax education. So, I mean, if you're, if you're getting $500,000, you should have a financial advisor at that point. Yeah. I'd like to circle back to our panelists to ask them, if there's anything that hasn't been articulated or discussed that you want to raise before we shut down. 
I, I will just add the story about my previous institution, Linfield. Woo, woo. So it's a small D3 school down in Oregon. And I worked really closely with our compliance associate AD to develop our NIL policy, which one of the things that stood out was at the conference level when this became legal and this became legal July 1st, right? So it's summertime. It's a time when a lot of athletics department are taking a breather <laughs> and trying to catch their breath, especially departments that don't have all the resources that they need. And there was a conversation amongst the compliance officers in the athletic department in the conference. And they were honestly just so overwhelmed and just honest, <laughs> did not want to touch NIL. Because it was just another thing added to their plate that they honestly didn't have the resources to manage. And or the bandwidth. In the bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. Simple bandwidth. And I think that's been a real, real problem for a lot of institutions. Like we've said, it's an arms race of everyone trying to keep up. And so it's it's definitely, I think, a, a tricky issue. And we did have one student who she was an, an awesome softball player, also a manager for the football team. She went to a state fair that summer, had a TikTok that went viral of her like lifting in her like cowboy boots and jeans. And I mean, like viral, viral, like millions of people <laughs> saw it. And and we were like talking to her like, oh, you should like try to get like some kind of like jean, Wrangler jeans deal or something. But she literally just didn't have the time to d deal with it because she's a student athlete. She's a manager. She's doing all these other things. So I think that's another thing that we don't think about a lot is like student, some of them just don't have the time to do this. So. I think I have a little list here. What are the 10 top things of NIL? And these are good skills and good things for athletes. You can earn money, you can pay off debts, you can start building wealth while you're still in college. You get financial independence while in college, even if you're not in the pros. That's awesome. You're 10, 20 years ahead of your classmates who've been taking out loans. Build marketable skills. If you're not going to play, or even if you are professionally, you're learning, you know, valuable business and real life experience. You're learning things that are going to help you the rest of your life. You're going to learn business relationships, especially with schools who have active collectives and active boosters. I mean, what what we've really been stressing is go out and meet meet the supporters, build relationships. This can help you get a job. This can, you know help you build your, your brand and your relationships, your networking now, developing your key relationships in the community and peers, and you can do charitable endeavors. The, the football player I was helping at, at USC, he has a company called Momentum, well, both a pod and a company called Momentum Truck, and he has a, an old like <clears throat> ice cream truck or, or food services truck, and he would get the leftover food from training table and bring it to South Central LA and to Skid Row with other football players every week and give away great food to people who actually needed it. So, I mean, you can form your own charity or get involved in charities and causes and build awareness of them. I think the one thing I'd like to okay. add is I actually like NIL and I think we're a long ways away from getting to where we need to be, but I think NIL is a good thing. I had a football coach share with me that he had a text from one of his players at about one in the morning telling him he wasn't going to make it to practice. He was newly married. He had a baby and he was not going to make it to practice because he had just come back from work. So he's doing school. He's practicing. He has a job because he's trying to make ends meet to provide like diapers, baby formula. A lot of times people think like, oh, this NIL thing's ruining college. They're going out buying sports cars. But there's also the flip side, right? He's trying to provide for his young family and he's like working this additional job 
just for the necessities for the baby. And so I think NIL is a really good thing for these, these student college athletes. They generate hundreds of millions of dollars for these universities, for these sports programs. And I think it's long overdue for them to be compensated because they're the ones that are generating the, the money. So I think that's the one thing I'd like to share is that I think it's a good thing. And I think we're still steps away from where we eventually need to be, but I think it's a step in the right direction. No, I mean, I agree. There, there would not be a $7 billion, think about that, $7 billion Big Ten media rights agreement if it wasn't for the athletes who are playing the games and generating the revenue, and they should get a part of it. My comments are my own. They're not the AGs or, <laughs> or UDubs. I think when, when we talk about all the issues around collegiate athletics, I, I go back to, is there, and if so, what is the value in having athletics programs at a university? Like, what is the benefit? What's the value? My opinion is, is there's an awful lot of value to being an athlete, a student athlete, whatever you want to call it, at the university, <laughs> participating in, in athletics provides an awful lot of benefits. And I think that most athletic directors, which I won't speak for every athletic director in the room, <laughs> um, the athletic directors that I work with and the ones that I speak with, their main goal is student safety foremost and student experience, but also providing as much athletic experience to as many students as possible that's where their mind is. They're, they're not thinking about how can I get this coach $5 million more million. It's, it's how can I increase the experience that the students in, in my department, how can I benefit them in terms of the people that they're going to be when they leave university. And that's what I come to, back to whenever we talk about NIL or employment or whatever the, the new uh, catastrophe is for facing collegiate athletics is what is the benefit for all of this? And if you can't answer that question, then, then that's where the problem is. You've been listening to the Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening.